Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but we'll also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Dame Jocelyn Bell-Brunel is an astrophysicist from Northern Ireland who, as a postgrad student, discovered the first pulsars, the discovery of which eventually earned the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1974. Jocelyn is now a visiting academic at the University of Oxford and the Chancellor of the University of Dundee, but throughout her career she's been associated with many different universities and held many roles, including becoming the first female president of the Institute of Physics and the Royal Society of Edinburgh. She has received countless honours, including the Oppenheimer Prize, the Tinsley Prize, and a three million special breakthrough prize in fundamental physics in 2018. And in 2021, won the prestigious Copley Prize, being the second female ever to win this prize. And so with all of this in mind, uh, Jocelyn, I'm so thrilled to have you in the podcast today um, and having you as a, an Irish researcher flying the flag abroad uh, for, for many years. So uh, yeah, welcome to Unraveling Science. Thank you, Megan, and good to talk with you. Great. Um, I'd like to get a little sense of what it was like growing up in, I think, Lurgan and Armagh and where this kind of spark or interest for science began. So, yes, I was uh, born during the Second World War, lived um, near Lurgan, a couple of miles away out in the countryside. Uh, Family were farming the local land. And I was born into a household, I think, of 16 adults, including two refugees. Uh, Certainly one was a German Jew, the other was white Russian. So we had two refugees helping basically with the farming. So it was a a, a very big household of of adults. (laughs) And were you the oldest child? Yes. Yeah. Um, My father was an architect. And once the war was over, he went back to architecture. And uh, I quite often went with him on site visits and sometimes helped him with surveying new sites you know, getting the the lie of the land, the level of the land. And in particular, he was the architect for the observatory in Armagh. So I used to go with him. Um, A lot of his job was finding leaks in the roof. And I kid the Armagh astronomers that I know their roof space better than they do, having crawled through it with my father trying to find where the leak was. (laughs) So do you think that maybe that experience kind of being around the the observatory maybe sparked interest in in astrophysics particularly? Well, it meant that I knew about it. But what really sparked interest was my father brought home a book um, by Fred Hoyle, who some listeners may have heard the name. He he, he was a, a famous astronomer, astrophysicist, and he wrote a lot of books, including some science fiction books. So, yeah. Fred Hoyle's, one of Fred Hoyle's book uh, appeared in our house. My father brought it home from the library. And I was probably about age 12 at this stage. Um, I took it upstairs to my bedroom to read. And I remember reading about these great galaxies, millions and millions of stars that wheel around. And 
at school at that time in physics, we were doing what we call circular motion, the forces on a body that's moving around in a circle. And I suddenly could see that what we were learning in school, in physics, could be applied to these immense systems of stars. And I thought, right, I'll be an astronomer. <laughs> so from about age 14, I decided I was going to be an astronomer. But the assumption um, actually well embedded in the whole of Northern Ireland was that girls were going to become wives, mothers, stay-at-home wives and mothers. And it would be the boys who would have jobs and would go out into the world. And so boys' education was very much pitched to that. And the girls' education was pitched towards them learning how to cook and sew and manage a house. Um, so girls weren't supposed to do science. I, I think you're, you were outraged by this when you, when you f- discovered um, that you were not going to be attending the science class. Yeah, because my parents had promised me I'd get to do science when I got to secondary school. And when I told my parents that evening that the girls had all been sent to the cookery room, no choice, they were pretty cross and they phoned up the head teacher. Uh, the local doctor had a daughter in my class and he too wanted his daughter to do science. So he had phoned the head teacher. And the second time the science class met, there were three girls, three of us and all the boys. And I think we were the first girls that had ever done science in that school. And the teacher clearly thought we were dynamite because he made us sit right up against his desk you know, within spitting distance of him. <laughs> In case what you would do, you would disrupt the boys. I think that's maybe what he was worried about. Yes. Um, we did physics that first term. I loved it. I came top of the class. It was a doddle. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, speaking of, you know, coming top of the class and obviously, you know, your subsequent academic life. But it's, I found it quite interesting, the, you know, the situation where you ended up failing the 11 plus exams, which I think people will find interesting and realize that, you know, not everyone who kind of is in academia has been a student throughout. And it's maybe when you find that passion for the, the subject that you love, that's where you kind of shine. Yeah, uh, the primary school I was in was tiny. It was actually tacked onto the side of the secondary school. Um, It was two classrooms, two teachers, three or four kids in each year, three or four years in each room. And my parents saw primary schools as kind of sausage machines to get kids through the, the, the 11 plus exam. And my parents didn't really want that kind of secondary education, but it wasn't terribly good. And I failed that exam at 11 plus. Um, Two things were against me. One was that I was doing it young, a year young, and therefore had to get a higher pass mark. And the other thing that was against me was that I was a girl and girls had to get higher pass marks. Oh, really? Everybody knew, note the inverted commas, everybody knew that girls were only going to become stay-at-home housewives, wives and mothers. They didn't really need much secondary education, whereas the boys who were going out in the world really needed it. And one of the snags is that at age 11 or 12, girls tend to be a bit more mature than boys. And too many girls were passing the exam. Okay. Boys out of proper secondary education. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's mad. So I suppose you, you know, you, you did end up finding this flair for, for physics and you decided to go to the University of Glasgow to 
um, take up a, a degree in physics. What was that move like, you know, moving from, I suppose, Northern Ireland over to, to Scotland? Well, they'd already sent, were sending all of us kids away to boarding school in the north of England for part of our secondary education. They wanted us to have some of it out of Northern Ireland. So I'd already been away from home for five or six years in York. So staying that side of the water, you know, everybody was quite used to that, to be honest. Um, and parents encouraged us to do whatever we were good at, basically. So if physics was my thing, okay, so be it. But yeah, that's amazing. So what was it like um, uh, studying physics in Glasgow? It was quite tough. Um, there were very few women around in many sciences. I think biology had quite a few, but in all the others, the women were in a minority. And it was the, quote, tradition at that time in Glasgow that when a woman entered the lecture theatre, all the guys whistled, stamped, banged their desks, catcalled, made as much embarrassing noise as they could. Um, that was fairly tough. Um, the two final years in Glasgow were particularly tough because I ended up the only woman in a class of 50. And normally what the women would do would congregate outside the lecture theatre and enter in a group. So you have that embarrassing barrage, you know, in a group. But I had to face it alone. I learned not to blush. You can control your blushing. And it was quite important so to do, because if you blush, they just made more noise. It's actually just mad to think of that now. You know, I just it just wouldn't happen, um, which I suppose is great just to have far we've yes. come. But also it's, it's quite shocking, really, that that was let happen. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was, you know, what students did kind of thing. So none of the staff would intervene or anything like that. So I suppose you then decided to pursue a PhD in Cambridge. And I know you spoke about this kind of idea of imposter syndrome. You know, a lot of academics, especially female academics, feel this uh, all the time. And I think you definitely felt it maybe uh, embarking on your journey in Cambridge. Yes, uh, I'd been a student in Glasgow. I'd been in school in the north of England and Northern Ireland. I'd never been as far south as Cambridge before. It's a different country. <laughs> <laughs> They're all terribly poised and suave and confident. <laughs> and I felt a bit of a northern yokel and not sure that I was bright enough for this place. And that is classic imposter syndrome. You know, I, they made a mistake admitting me I'm not bright enough to be here. Kind of approach. Uh, um, I now work in Oxford and we, we know to look out for this because if you're not careful, the student will say, I'd better leave before they throw me out. Yeah. And they're within the first week of the first term of their first year. I know <laughs> this idea of, you know, they're, they're going to find out soon. Yeah. But I'd had quite a fight to get there. So I wasn't going to give up of my own accord. But I was pretty certain they'd made a mistake. They would discover their mistake. And my strategy was to work as hard as I could, as thoroughly as I could, so that when they threw me out, I'd know I'd done my best and I <laughs> wasn't bright enough. So yeah. I was working very hard. Which obviously did not happen. You know, you, you weren't thrown out. Um, but I mean, talk to me about the PhD experience, because I suppose when when we think of astrophysics and physics, I don't think I had really envisaged the fact that your first two years in your PhD was nearly spent in construction and um, yeah. building this, this radio telescope. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. 
Yes, the project I embarked on was a, a very interesting one to find more objects called quasars, which were the hot, sexy topic then. Not many of them were known. And to find these quasars, um, we needed a new radio telescope and we built it ourselves. Six of us spent about two years building this radio telescope. Now, radio telescopes come in all shapes and sizes. This one looked more like an agricultural frame than a radio telescope. There were about a thousand wooden posts, for instance, you know, six foot, eight foot tall with wires strung between them. The wires were the important bit. The posts were to keep them out of the wet grass. <laughs> it's, um, so it was a, a very basic radio telescope, but it was also very large and therefore quite sensitive. And I was also the first person to operate it, and I made sure it was its output was maximised, that it really was going as well as it possibly could. Yeah, and I read that you, you know, you you learned how to swing a sledge during your PhD, and mm -hmm. there was it was quite was, manual yes. labour. Some of it was, yes. I was spared most of the sledgehammering, but I did enough that I could swing a sledge. I was also playing hockey at the time, and I could hit the hockey ball from one end of the pitch to the other. <laughs> My teammates never learned or were slow learners. You know, they'd sort of watch it going by and say, oh, Jocelyn, kind of, how do you expect us to pick up that? <laughs> they didn't think start running when the ball came anywhere near me. <laughs> I, I've had Professor Peter Gallagher on the podcast before speaking about the radio telescope in Burr. So what is the what is the difference, I suppose, firstly, between a radio telescope and the ones we look out into the galaxies for? And why what are we recording with a radio telescope? Right. Well, radio waves are quite like light waves that the things we see, you know, through a telescope. Um, they're, they're just different frequencies, different wavelengths, different wave band, if you wish. Um, and so a, an ordinary optical telescope won't work for them. Basically, my radio telescope was like a couple of thousand TV aerials all connected up together. That's the, the nearest analogy I think I can come up with. And it covered a large area, um, all these TV aerials connected up together. 57 tennis courts several football pitches, <laughs> a big feed full of posts and wire. So you were the, the graduate student, you were the PhD kind of working on this uh, on the ground. And when we think of the data and the big data that we kind of can get in science today, mm. everything is done on a computer, but that wasn't the case for you. Um, and everything was done manually. I mean, that, that is insane. <laughs> so what was the readouts like? Computers were just coming in. The university had a computer for the whole university with memory like your laptop. <laughs> and it took up a whole room because it was made with valves, vacuum tubes, not transistors. But equally, very few people could have time on it, and we didn't. Um, so our data came out on rolls and rolls and rolls of paper chart. And one of my jobs was to keep the chart recorders full of rolls of paper and ink in the ink wells and so on. Um, and my other job was to analyze the data that came out on these charts. And there was miles of it, literally several miles of chart paper by the time I'd done. How, like, how did you even begin? Because I'm sure once you had analyzed one day, the next day was coming behind you. Yeah, yeah, but things would change with the seasons a bit. So 
I observed for six months. And just because you've seen something once doesn't mean it's real. You really need confirmation several times over. So that's why you keep at this. So talk to me about that moment where you did make that key observation um, of, I suppose, as you called it, the, the bit of scruff on the paper. No, well, analysing all these miles of paper chart, I was looking for objects called quasars and I found quite a few. Um, and a big radio telescope like that would pick up a lot of interference, you know, hiss and crackle and snaps and bangs and so on. And I got used to identifying the interference. Um, just occasionally, about 10% of the time, there'd be a signal that I couldn't quite make sense of. And I thought, stuff it. And went on because this paper chart's coming at me at a hell of a rate. So after seeing this peculiar signal a few times, my brain clicked that actually I had seen something like this before. And furthermore, I'd seen it coming from the same bit of sky. And that makes it a lot easier because then you can check all the recordings you have from that bit of sky. And sure enough, when it was there, it was always from the same bit of sky. Sometimes it was so weak you couldn't see it. But after I'd accumulated three or four of these sightings, I showed my supervisor and he said, oh, probably interference, but we ought to check it out. And the way we had to check it out was making special observations. So I was going out to the observatory at the appropriate time to observe this bit of sky and making <clears throat> special observations and it had gone, disappeared. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, it was there and it was a string of pulses. Leap, 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 one and a third seconds apart. And my thesis advisor became even more suspicious of Jocelyn's abilities at mm. that <laughs> you've connected things up wrong lass or something like that came out and watched me do it at the observatory one day saw the pulses for himself and that's where it all began that was the first thing that we now call a pulsar and uh, it was a bit disturbing until a few weeks later I found a second one different part of the sky and then things begin to feel a lot better um, having two from different parts of the sky begins to think you're just scraping the top of some new phenomenon. And maybe, maybe there's lots, lots more. And indeed, I found a third and a fourth as well. So with four under our belt, we were pretty certain this was a new kind of star. They weren't quite sure what, but it looks like a new kind of star. Wow. I mean, that must have been so exciting. It's exciting. It's also quite worrying. Your thesis advisor is there to try and find what you've done wrong. It's a bit nerve wracking. <laughs> and at one point, having found four, he said to me, how many more have you missed? Really? <laughs> go, go back through all your old records. <laughs> so I suppose before we go into the controversy around this discovery, what is a pulsar? What does it mean? Yeah, right. Well, pulsar is itself an abbreviation of pulsating radio star. It's a star, star-like thing up there in the sky that sends out radio waves in pulses. It literally goes bleep, 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 bleep. Um, we now know that that's because it's behaving a bit like a lighthouse. You know the way you see a lighthouse is going flash, 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 
when in fact what it's doing is swinging a beam of light around the horizon and you see it each time it shines in your face. Mm-hmm. Well, these pulsars were also swinging a beam of radio waves around the sky and we saw them whenever they shone on our radio telescope. We pick up the flash. So they are quite like lighthouses. It also incidentally means there's probably quite a few in the universe whose beam doesn't shine on the Earth. So we don't see them. We don't know they exist. But we actually now know of several thousand of them. Um, There are probably many, many more in the galaxy. And these are stars that I have exploded and once thought that they're they just disintegrated but this is what's left the condensed remains is that right yes that's probably what it is there are some very big stars much bigger than our sun um, that will end their life with an explosion and in that explosion the core of the star can be kicked against and shrunk squeezed made small and What we're seeing with these objects, these pulsars, is what had been the core of a star that's been squashed, squashed right down in that terminal explosion of the star. Am I right in saying that the uses perhaps for this, they could be used for navigation maybe? Yes, um, I've already given the analogy with lighthouses. They are a bit like lighthouses in space. The complication is you need to fix quite a big radio telescope to your spaceship. (laughs) And how you launch that, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) But, you know, technical details. We'll solve them one day. You go around in your spaceship with a radio telescope on the side and it homes in on different pulsars. Each one seems to have its own flash rate. So it really is quite like a lighthouse. And we say, okay, there's that pulsar up there and that one's down there and the other one's behind us. So our position is, by triangulation, here, such and such a spot in the galaxy. It's like GPS, in a way. Yes, yes. So you spearheaded this, you know, with your supervisor. Um, It was a big discovery published in Nature at the time. But then I I think I'm right in saying that you then left Cambridge um, because you got married. Yes. So what point then did the kind of news of the Nobel Prize, I suppose, come about? That was quite a bit later, um, I don't know, five or six, maybe even more years later before the Nobel Prize was awarded, because um, I'd already moved job twice by then. <laughs> the controversy, I suppose, surrounding this was that, you know, your supervisor and I suppose the, the head of astrophysics um, uh, at Cambridge were named on the, on the Nobel Prize. But you weren't. Um, And some people have kind of dubbed it the Nobel Prize uh, in the Mm -hmm. sense that you you weren't named. What do you think of that now? I I don't from what I can gather from interviews with you that I've watched, you're not bitter about it. But I think at the same time, it it should have it should have really included you. At that time, the Nobel Prize Committee didn't normally consider students work. They were focused on on the supervisors, the the senior academics. So the fact that I was a grad student at the time, I think, probably meant that um, I was invisible to the Nobel Prize Committee. But and also I wanted to talk to you about the kind of media coverage surrounding pulsars at the time and just the kind of horrific behavior that went on and the, I suppose, double standard between what your supervisor was asked about in the media and then what you were asked about. Yeah, the, the press interviews following the discovery were 
well, of their time, I think is probably fair, but which I find quite hard to deal with. Um, typical interview would have my supervisor, Tony, and I, and the journalist would ask Tony about the significance of these stars and what they were like and so on. And then they'd turn to me for what they called the human interest, page three stuff. Uh, what were my bust, waist and hip measurements? How many boyfriends did I have? This kind of thing. And photographers would be asking me to undo some more buttons, please. Um, you weren't a scientist. You were a piece of meat. And and even just the, the headlines of, you know, girl discovers, you know, pulsars when why weren't you given your title? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, society is still quite sexist, but it was very sexist back then. When I read some of that, and I know we've obviously come a long way since since then, but actually there was a an article written in one of my local newspapers about this podcast and and my kind of research progression, and the the title was Kilbegan, which which is where I'm from. Kilbegan girl unravels science, and I'm kind of going not that I would want it to be academic or whatever, but they didn't even say you know Doctor Megan Hanlon. It was Megan Han, and I was kind of like it was a lovely article, but the headline Kilbegan girl was just a little. But, you know, I'm I'm 27. So it's like, I'm not really a girl either. You know, that kind of way. So it is, it, it was. Patronizing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I feel like this is something you've probably come up against a lot in your career, especially because physics is quite a male dominated field as it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Society has gradually changed, but it's still got a bit to go. Uh, People might be surprised when you say you're a physicist, you know, oh, isn't that difficult kind of thing. Whereas if I were a young man, they wouldn't say, oh, isn't that difficult? They'd say, fantastic, great, congratulations. So society's improved a lot from when I was a student, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm, definitely. I, I read that you said if you hadn't probably got married, you would have probably stayed a postdoc in radio astronomy and probably would have spent your life kind of working in that field but that didn't happen you did get married and so you've been all over the place uh, and had jobs in so many different universities and, and countries talk to me about that and, and what your career has been like yeah I got engaged to be married between discovering pulsars two and three and I got married between submitting my PhD thesis and having the actual Viva exam at the end. (laughs) And the guy I married worked in local government. And the way you progress in local government is every few years moving to another locality and going up a grade, up a notch. So we were moving fairly regularly. And uh, also we had a child after a few years. So it became very difficult for me to work partly because there wasn't childminding and uh, partly because I'd just get nicely established in a place and husband would say, it's time we moved. And so we'd up sticks and off somewhere else. So I regard my career as being a bit like a game of snakes and ladders. You know, with luck, you end at the foot of a ladder, which you can climb. But then after a bit, you end at the top of a snake, the head of a snake, and you slide right down it and you have to try and find another ladder. So my career has not been a normal, normal career for that reason. Uh, These days, it's much more acceptable for women and mothers to work. Um, It's a bit easier. It's not totally easy, but it is a bit easier. There's more childminding, for instance. Um, 
it was firmly believed that in my time that if mothers work, the children would be hooligans. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. So you don't make it easy for mothers to work. You don't provide childcare. God, I do think it definitely is still hard for for women in science. And that's something I ask, you know, any kind of female academic I get on the podcast. How do you juggle family life with with academia? But I think there was, yeah, definitely extra constraints, It, you know, when you were a new mom. Yeah, I think so. Society is gradually changing. <laughs> So I, I wanted to also talk to you about, you know, some of the aspects of, of your career. You worked in Hawaii for a time. Uh, what, what was that like? I wasn't actually living in Hawaii, but I had to go to Hawaii from time to time. It was really tough. <laughs> Getting to Hawaii is hell. It's a very, very long journey. <laughs> but once you got there, it's really interesting. Um, Tropical island, of course, you know, sea, sand, palm trees, coconuts kind of things. But there's a very high mountain in the middle of Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii, called Mauna Kea. And on top of that, there are now a lot of telescopes. So many that the the local Hawaiians are feeling offended. So that's another interesting issue. Um, Native culture is asserting itself more these days. you know, that's our holy mountain folk. You cannot put another telescope there. And you were kind of managing the telescope. Um, I was managing one aspect of it, but I was living in Edinburgh. Um, so only visiting Hawaii from time to time. But the telescope was owned jointly by the Brits, the Canadians and the Dutch. And my job was liaison. So I had to travel quite a lot in Netherlands and in Canada visiting astronomers in those countries. So that was really interesting. You also worked with Open University quite quite a lot. Yes, it's aimed at students who are in work and are studying part-time at home. These days, most of it is online, but when it started, there weren't computers in the same way. So what you might think of as lectures were broadcasts at six o'clock in the morning on television. And students and I as tutor would get up and watch these broadcasts at six o'clock in the morning. Um, my son, who was in primary school at that time, also got up because the programs were very, very well done. They knew that people would be watching them when they weren't at their best, you know, early in the morning or at night after work. And they wanted to make it uh, as accessible as possible. So relativity was taught by showing spaceships shooting each other and this kind of thing, which, you know, my five-year-old loved. (laughs) And he would go up the road to school muttering about the speed of light and then spend the day threading beads on strings or whatever they did at first class primary school. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you're thinking about that. That's very timely now, considering everything, a lot of teachings on Zoom. (laughs) So Yes, yes, that's right. It's, it's, very useful that you can teach that way. It's not as easy as teaching face to face. You can't see the people you're teaching. You don't really know whether they're still understanding you. <laughs> or still listening, I suppose, as well. Or even still listening, yes. <laughs> um, I know that you set up your own group eventually with a focus on um, binary stars. Mm-hmm. Speak to me about that. And, you know, at what point in your career then were you kind of a PI and, and head of a lab? And how long did it take you to get there? Well, it took me a long time to get there because um, 
the moves I made were my husband's moves, not my moves, you see. But the marriage broke up ultimately. Um, son went off to university. And suddenly I was free to go after a job because of what it was, not where it was. And they advertised a position at the Open University headquarters for the head of the physics department. And I got that. So became professor of physics and lived in Milton Keynes, which is a new city and an interesting place to live. And that was very, very enjoyable. Um, got some good people in, did some good work, um, taught a lot of students, of course, as well. By that time, I had worked in most parts of the spectrum because of my miscellaneous career. So the group that I set up there was studying what we call binary stars, stars in pairs, energetic binary stars, uh, with whatever equipment at whatever wavelength would answer the questions that needed answering. So we stopped being, you know, an X-ray astronomy group or an infrared astronomy group or, or something like that and just became an energetic binary system group. And that was, that was a good move and probably was one of the first in the country where the work was focused on a theme, not on the kit that you had access to. Did you enjoy that time, you know, being a PI? Um, and did you feel that maybe that's what you'd wanted all those years ago? Yes, I would have in many ways liked a more regular career, but it didn't happen. Um, however, I had a good time at the Open University and built up a great super group there. And the students, of course, as always, were fantastic to teach. I suppose now, do you um, direct much research or are you mainly uh, lecturing? Neither. I'm well retired. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I'm supposed to be retired. Um, Oxford University have me as a, a visiting professor, which is fantastic. Um, and I do a lot of lecturing to outside groups. That's probably the, the main thing I do now. But because I am in Oxford, I can attend all these wonderful talks and hear about the research that's going on and hopefully keep reasonably up to date with what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just fascinating, I suppose, because on this podcast, the, the, one of the main focuses is to hear about people's career progression. And, you know, there are, there's definitely different journeys people take but it's majority the same you know you do your PhD uh, you might kind of do a year traveling abroad then go postdoc then kind of get on the academic route so it's so refreshing to hear from you because you've had so such a varied career and such a different career than the I suppose the normal academic route. Mm -hmm. Yeah it's it's been a unique. <laughs> um. I suppose I also wanted to ask, you know, what do you love about being an astrophysicist and, and I suppose radio astronomy? Um, you know, what gets you up in the morning? Uh, the field is very exciting. There's a lot happening, um, including some stuff I wasn't sure would happen in my lifetime, but has happened, which is fantastic. So it, it's just the amazing things we are discovering about the universe and continuing to discover about the universe that keep me very much awake. And on my toes. Following on from that, what do you love about academia? What I enjoy doing is finding ways to explain things to people who are not expert in the field. Um, that's quite a challenge to find good explanations that are 
both comprehensible but also true to the subject, you know, not distorting it too much. Um, so I enjoy doing that, and that's why I do a lot of lecturing to what we might call lay audiences. And then I suppose on the flip side, what kind of annoys you or frustrates you about academia? Well, at the moment, it's closed. (laughs) With the pandemic, uh, which is all a bit sad. However, we will probably get through the pandemic okay, and things will ultimately get back to normal. But at the moment, we are not normal. No, definitely not. Um, You've given this title, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell. Speak to me about that. What's the honour that 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 bestows? Um, The male equivalent, approximately equivalent, would be a knight. You'd be Sir. um, Sir John or whatever. Um, And the female version is Dame. Um, They're not quite equivalent. There's still a sort of slight sexist air to this. Um, if I were a man and had become a knight, Sir, Sir Jocelyn, my wife would be lady. Uh, as a female, if I become dame, my husband, if I have one, doesn't get any title. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Still with us, yes. You know, in 2018, you were also awarded this kind of special, I suppose, breakthrough prize in uh, fundamental physics and award a huge sum of money, which you've now set up, uh, I suppose, a scholarship fund. You know, talk to me about that and what you hope to achieve with, uh, with, with this fund. Well, it goes back to my time in Cambridge when I felt a bit of an outsider. You know, I wasn't Southern English, I wasn't male, and I wasn't sure I was clever enough for Cambridge. Um, and my particular solution was to work very hard. The subject of physics is full of white men. There are women, there are some women, there's getting to be more women, but women are still in a minority, um, as are in the UK, people of colour and so on. And I thought, well, it was my difference that made me work very hard in Cambridge. Maybe if we could get more people who are different into physics, They too would work very hard, bring fresh insights, different ways of looking at things and make discoveries. So the money has gone to the Institute of Physics, which is our professional body, um, to set up studentships, research students, for students from underrepresented groups, which means not white men, basically. Uh, So they've been awarding them to women, they've awarded them to Um, people of colour, they've awarded them to people with disabilities, uh, just to try and broaden the base of research in physics in the UK. Do you think that's something that maybe should start from primary school, you know, encouraging kind of young girls, especially to to get interested in physics? Or do you think it's more of a thing that we need more visible role models or a bit of both? I think one of the things I'd like to see change is toys. Certainly, you sometimes find toy shops with a pink section and a blue section. And if you look at the way toys are advertised for small children, the girls' toys are, you know, pretty, um, passive, pink, friends, kindly, that kind of thing. The boys' toys are much more empowering. Um, Use words like power and battle and strong and construction and 
It's a completely different set of advertising for boys' mm -hmm. toys and toys. And I think one of the main reasons there aren't more women out there doing science is this conditioning they get from a very young age to be pretty and pink and passive. Yeah, yeah. So that is definitely something that could societally change, you know. Yeah, indeed. Um, I also just, you mentioned there the Institute of Physics and you were president there for a number of years. What was that role like? And did you enjoy your, your term? Yeah, I was the first female president, if I remember rightly. I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, quite a busy role. Uh, physics is an is, um, important subject, major subject. Um, a number of the people who are physicists have done physics degrees and then gone on to significant jobs elsewhere outside of academia. So even though I've been in academia most of my life, um, I recognize that a lot of physicists are actually out there developing widgets, inventing things, building things, making things. So it's quite a broad institute, the Institute of Physics, because it's covering all those dimensions. Now, no one individual can cover all those dimensions, but the council between us, we pretty well covered those dimensions. So that was good. It was an interesting job to do. Yeah. And again, you know, such an honour. Um, because this podcast, I suppose, this the season I wanted to, as I said, speak to Irish researchers abroad. I'm just wondering, you know, do you think you'll ever come back to Ireland and, and, and live here? Do you think you're, you're set in the UK? I'm probably set in the UK, to be honest. I now have my Irish passport as well as my British passport. <laughs> um, and Ireland has been very kind to me and very generous to me. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that and very happy to acknowledge that. Um, and I love the country, the whole of the country. Quite where the politics is going at the moment up north, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. Um, Jocelyn, my last question for you is, you know, if you weren't a physicist, a researcher, an academic, where do you think your life might have ended up, you know, in an alternative career do you think you might have had? Might not have had a career. I mean, the norm for my generation was to get married, have children and be a stay-at-home wife and mother. And do you think there's any other kind of hobbies or something you might have pursued if, if that wasn't the case? I don't know. I can't actually imagine myself living that life for more than a couple of years before I go berserk. <laughs> I know a lot of people say they can. Yeah. When I ask that question, they're like, I, I can't imagine doing anything, anything different, um, which I suppose means you're in you're in the right career for you. Um, Listen, it's been so lovely to to chat to you um, and to hear your stories. And uh, yeah, such an honour. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Megan. Thank you for the opportunity. And take care. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.